Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants a dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Well, let's begin by praying together. Let's pray. Great God of highest heaven, the God of Daniel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would reveal your greatness to us afresh this evening by your word and lead us all to find refuge under your wings as we put our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daniel chapter 2 begins with a crisis. It's a royal crisis. We're going to read the rest of the chapter in a moment, but I've asked Davy to stop at the end of verse 18 there just so that we can get a sense of the tension that's not going to be resolved until later in the chapter. This crisis concerns a great king. In fact, he's one of the greatest the world has ever seen. And that's not just his own assessment of himself. It's not just my assessment of him. It's God's assessment. 
you just look on to verse 37 and see what God says to this king, verse 37, through Daniel, God says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he's given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Known to history as King Nebuchadnezzar II, this particular king was the longest reigning and most powerful monarch in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He was unrivaled in authority and influence and power. And in his day, which was the 6th century BC, Babylon and the capital city at the center of his empire was decked with gold and filled with beautiful monuments, the famous hanging gardens, a stupendous bridge across the river Euphrates. And here in language reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, God speaks to this king like he would have said to Adam and acknowledges him as Lord over everything his eye can see. And among this king's imperial possessions are the promised land itself, God's own people, many of whom, like Daniel, had been taken into exile in Babylon, far from home. In this exile, 600 BC or thereabouts, the gods of Babylon seem to have won the day. The God of Israel, his temple destroyed, his people dispersed, seems to have been sidelined. And yet all is not well for the king of kings. Did you see his reign has only just begun when we read in verse 1 about his bad dreams? Nebuchadnezzar's spirit is troubled. Seems to be almost a technical term in the Bible for various different sleep disorders. And maybe a, a nightmare or two might have been bearable, but the visions that Nebuchadnezzar has seen while he's asleep now haunt him as he lies awake. He's developed full-blown insomnia. If you've ever struggled with sleeplessness, you might be able to sympathize a little with the king. But what he has here seems to be more than just a medical condition brought on by the, the stresses and strains of ruling the world's greatest empire seems to have gone right to his soul and cut him to the quick. See, what we have here is the beginning of an astonishing sequence of events by which this man, once a proud pagan prince, humbles himself before Almighty God and ends up giving him the glory that's due to his name. In other words, this is the start of a conversion story. In this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is encountering, for the first time perhaps, the one true living God. And it begins as a really unsettling experience for him. You see, just as God is in charge when he makes Nebuchadnezzar sovereign, so God is in charge when he makes Nebuchadnezzar suffer. And God does both of these things in love for a very good reason. For all his power over other people, at heart, Nebuchadnezzar is just one more as yet unconverted sinner with a troubled spirit crying out for relief. 
For all that Nebuchadnezzar's world and his worldview trumpeted that the God of Israel was impotent and irrelevant, his worldview has one big problem. It's not true, and it doesn't work. They might not be kings and queens, but are there not many people in our world around us just like this? Maybe folks very close to us. Now, this is a crisis for the king, of course, but it's also a crisis very quickly for his servants too. Perhaps sick and tired of his useless magicians and his spiritual advisors, Nebuchadnezzar makes this impossible demand of them. Don't just tell me the meaning of my dream, he says. Tell me the dream itself. If you're familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he's saying, I don't just want to know that the answer to the ultimate question is 42. I want to know the question itself. And rightly, in verse 5, these advisors begin to realize the impossible situation they're in. Look at verse 5, that the stark choice that's facing these Chaldeans, they were a special caste of Babylonian wise men and astrologers. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, tell me the dream or I'll trash your place and I'll tear you limb from limb. The history books tell us that Nebuchadnezzar II was a ruthless ruler and we get a glimpse of that here, do we not? What on earth were these servants to do? They recognize quite rightly, verse 10, that the king is demanding something completely impossible beyond human power and ken. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, they say. And they're right. But in response, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a right royal rage. In verse 12, he's angry and furious. He commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And into the midst of this crisis is thrust Daniel. It's a crisis, of course, for him as well, because he's going to get destroyed pretty soon too. His life's on the line. And Daniel is about to take one step forward, as they say. He has his time with the king. He's got his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's got them praying on their knees. And he has an unenviable dilemma. Do the impossible, Daniel, or die? Well, let's read the rest of the chapter, starting picking this up in verse 19. My Bible's different from you, so I can't give you a page number, but it's the same text, I hope. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you've given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. King said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? 
Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Well, thanks for holding on in there through a long reading. This is how the story pans out. And I want us to think about it now under three headings that I've put on the back of the service sheet. So if you've got those, you may want to take a look just to follow along. I've chosen these because I think they're the three standout themes of the chapter. So the only wise God, the wisdom of God's servant, and wisdom that's winsome. 
As we think through this chapter, I want us to reflect on this. This is not just a story from long ago. It's a word of encouragement, I think, for all of us as we seek to make Jesus known to those around us. Let's see why. So first of all, the only wise God, revealer of mysteries. This chapter, Daniel 2, is great for enlarging our vision of God. And I think we all need that. I know that I need that. My temptation is to have too small a vision of the God of the Bible. This chapter broadens that out. And one way we can see that and it can help us with that is by looking at the different names of God, the ways God is described or called in this chapter. As we see God at work in Daniel's story through these names, we can have trust and confidence that the same God is at work in our lives and our stories too. So first of all, he's called five times the God of heaven in this chapter. If you take notes and you want to look at it later, verses 18, 19, 28, 36, and 44. The God of heaven. Now, heaven is not just God's address. It's not just given to us as as a place we can go and look him up when we want to to find out how he's doing. The fact that our God is the God of heaven reminds us of his sovereignty He rules over all things. He changes the seasons, as Daniel says. He sets up kings. He brings them down. His sovereignty and also his glory, he dwells in unapproachable light. But the God of heaven is not just the possessor of immense force. If we belong to him through Jesus Christ, he's powerful for us. So if you're a Christian, you can expect to receive from heaven help, and wisdom, just like Daniel gets here. Second, Daniel's called God, sorry, Daniel calls God, God of my fathers, in verse 23. This is another reminder that that the God we're dealing with here, the God of Scripture, is not just powerful, He's personal. He's a God of relationship. And not just any kind of relationship, but a covenant relationship of commitment, whereby he's bound himself with his precious promises to his chosen people. This is why we can say that Daniel doesn't just know about God. It's not just that Daniel could give us a list of God's divine attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his uh, sovereignty, whatever it is. Daniel could, I'm sure Daniel could tell us all those things. He knows those things about God. But he doesn't just know about God. He knows God in covenant. The God he knows is the God of his fathers. And third, God is called in verse 45, a great God. Or we could translate it, the great God. Some English Bibles do that. As we read through chapter 2 of, of Daniel, maybe you notice that it's full of greats. So Nebuchadnezzar is called a great king, verse 10. He beholds a great image in his dream, verse 31. There's a great mountain in verse 35. But the great God of highest heaven is greater and higher than them all. So Daniel has this enlarged vision of God. And by the end of the chapter, even King Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to share in that. In verse 47, he says to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Fourth, Daniel's, sorry, in that same verse, God 
is further called, verse 47, a revealer of mysteries. We get the same phrase a couple of other times in the chapter, verse 28, verse 29. It's a title that's used for God right through the book of Daniel. Divine revelation. It's one of the themes of this book and this chapter in particular. And the key terms used are show and make known and reveal. And at the start of the chapter, it's the astrologers and the Chaldeans who are unable to show the king what he wants to know. They can't make it known to him. They can't reveal. But in the second part of the chapter, God comes to the fore, and he's the one who can. He can show. He can make known. He can reveal. What does God reveal? Well, in this story, it's the specific content and the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But there's a much deeper and more important principle at work here. And the principle, I think, is this. We get it in Daniel's hymn of praise that he starts singing in verse 20. God takes what's his own and makes it known to his servants. Let me try and show you that from the Scripture. So, have a look at verse 20. And in that verse, you can see that Daniel says, to God belong wisdom and might. And then halfway through verse 23, Daniel says, you, God, have given me wisdom and might. They belong to him, but God gives them to Daniel. It happens again. Verse 22, God is the one who has knowledge. Daniel says that he knows what's in the darkness, what's hidden. But God's the one who takes that knowledge and makes it known or gives it to his servants. And we see that at the end of verse 23, the end of verse 21. Why does God do this? Well, in this way, God is not just revealing his secrets. He's revealing himself. When the Bible says that God reveals mysteries... We shouldn't think of God as some kind of Hercule Poirot who turns up in the, the last scene and reveals the secret that everybody's been dying to find out the answer to all along. I admit that in Daniel 2, it does look a little bit like that. But in the Bible as a whole, the great mystery that God has and that God reveals is his plan for the nations to bring everything under Jesus Christ's headship, to have everything fulfilled in Him who is the very image of God. And God, who knows the end from the beginning, right through the Bible, right through the history of our world, is making that plan plain. He's revealing the mystery. And as He does that, He does it in a saving way to pagan princes, to troubled spirits, even to those who seem like they don't have a care in the world, perhaps those around us, even to our friends and neighbors. Now, I've called this first theme of the chapter the only wise God. That's a th phrase that comes from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. When Paul calls God the only wise God, he doesn't mean that God is the only wise God and there are some unwise gods over there. He means that God, the only one true God, is the only one who is perfect wisdom. And as the Apostle Paul reflects on that, he's filled with praise, and he bursts out in praise in his letter. And Daniel does the same, verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Daniel has this enlarged vision of God, and it's there for us to share.
Well, having considered first the only wise God, let's turn next to think about the wisdom of God's servant, making God's wisdom known. In this case, the servant in question is Daniel. Daniel's one of the only characters in the Bible, one of the very few characters in the Bible, who's presented in an almost entirely positive light. Unlike Abraham or David, for example, we never read about Daniel sinning or even seeming to struggle with sin. And so some have thought of Daniel as a bit of a kind of cardboard cutout character. There's no depth to him. I think that's unfair. All we have to do is read between the lines of this book of Daniel, and we get a sense of the kind of struggles that he's facing, serving a pagan king in the bureaucracy of a, of a pagan empire far from home. Having said that, in this chapter, Daniel is described in a, a positive way. He's a man of, of prudence, verse 14. He's a man of prayer, verses 17 and 18, where he gets his friends to, to pray for him. He's a man of praise. We've already looked at his hymn of blessing in verse 20. And Daniel's seen to do all of these things publicly. His is a witness that's open to observation, open to scrutiny. It's not done in a corner. Furthermore, Daniel is a man who seeks out times to speak God's message to others. And that's something we've, of course, been encouraged to do recently as a church family, as part of our One Step Forward in evangelism training. I don't know how you've been getting on with that. I've found some new opportunities with people who come to our uh, church English class uh, on Tuesdays. But sometimes these opportunities, they're thrust upon us. It's not like we particularly are the ones making the, making the effort. Circumstances come together in God's providence. And here, Daniel's not got much choice, has he? His life's on the line. He's got to get up and say something. And yet, verse 16, I think, is a turning point in this story. Because that's where Daniel begins to take the initiative back. See, he's the one who goes in and says, can I have an audience with the king, a time to share God's message? And in all these things, his prudence, his prayer, his praise, his proclamation, Daniel was a model for us, an example to follow. And he's a model for us also in what he does when he gets the chance to speak God's message. What I find striking in the story is the way that it's described. Daniel is said to do exactly what God does. Let me show that to you from verse 47. It's a verse that we've already looked at again, but if you look at it again, there's more to see. So in that verse, verse 47, the king says to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for, and this is the part I want you to notice, you've been able to reveal the mystery. God is the revealer, but he reveals through Daniel, and so Daniel becomes the revealer of God's mysteries. Daniel hears God's words, and he passes them on. He receives wisdom from God, and he shares it with others. Now, Daniel is quick to insist that he is wise, not because he is wise in and of himself, but because he's got this wisdom from God. So verse 30, Daniel says there, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known 
to the king. And so on. That's just our position, isn't it? When we share God's message with those around us. We're not necessarily wiser or more intelligent or better people, more righteous or upright people than the person we may be sharing with. The power dynamic may be completely out of balance. It was with Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar held all the cards. Daniel's the slave. And yet God uses him. When we pass on what we've heard, we become revealers of truth. Or as Paul says in his language in his letter to the Corinthians, we become stewards of God's mysteries. Isn't that an amazing thought? When we share God's wisdom, we share something quite wonderful. It's God's mighty power to save. At the end of his explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verse 45, Daniel says, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. It's certain and sure. It's interesting that um, the word certain in this verse is the Aramaic word for that's right or yes, and you see it some other times in this book. And the word that sure is the root word that's behind our English word, amen, so be it. And I wonder if Paul, the apostle, had the testimony of Daniel in his mind when he wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 1. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The promises of God are yes and amen, sure and certain. So when we share the wisdom of God, we don't just share a philosophy. We don't just share a, a list of, of rules or a set of life hacks, some advice for having a more successful life or fulfilled life. We share the sure promises of God in Jesus, that God will judge the world through Him. That day is coming that God will establish in him an everlasting kingdom, but that before that day, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of grace, and anyone who puts their trust in him will be saved. Anyone who trusts in his sacrificial death so that their sins are paid for, so we can stand before God forgiven. It's the message we share. It's a message that is rejected by the world for the most part, but by the grace of God, it's not rejected by everybody. Sometimes it's accepted in the most unlikely places by the most unlikely people. And so finally, this evening, the third heading, wisdom that's winsome, recognizing the true God. This story in Daniel 2 records the beginning of the transformation, spiritual transformation, of the most important and powerful man in the world at the time. Uh, later in the book, if you know the story or if you read on later, Nebuchadnezzar appears to be thoroughly and soundly converted. He's a changed man. Imagine if you heard that President Donald Trump, uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un, of North Korea, and Grand Ayatollah Ali Khamenei of Iran had all become Christians, and they were getting together a missions conference to evangelize, re-evangelize the pagans of Scotland. 
How would you feel about that? Impossible. Well, the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar II is up there with that kind of level of astonishment. It's so remarkable, in fact, that most non-Christian scholars just assume that this can't possibly be true, and they decide it was written by some pious Jew centuries after the event, kind of wishful thinking. But for those of us who know and believe both the Scriptures and the power of God, this is just another example of what God does when people are converted by His message. We can trace some of the steps of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion in the chapter. At the beginning, I think the king probably shares the worldview of his spiritual advisors, the Chaldeans and the rest of them. Verse 11, if you flip back, they say to him, the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with men. In other words, we know that only a supernatural power can do what you're asking us to do, O king, but we've no way of knowing who it is and we've no way of accessing it. And interestingly enough, Daniel himself almost seems to say, or he goes part way with them later on. Verse 27, Daniel answered the king, verse 27, and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. You're right. You're utterly impotent, all of you, to do this. But, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. In other words, you're quite correct that only a supernatural power can do what you want to do. But I know who it is. I know who he is. And I'm going to tell you. And so by the end of the chapter, there's this striking role reversal. The great emperor, the king, bows down. Verse 46, bows down, pays homage to Daniel. He still doesn't quite get it at this point. He's trying to give sacrifices and make offerings to Daniel rather than to God. But he's on the way. He's on the way to understanding through the revealing power of God, through the witness of God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar knows now who is God of gods and Lord of kings. Now, you might have wondered why I haven't yet said much about the actual content of this dream and what it all means, and you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to talk much about that at all because we're nearly out of time. But I do just want to point out this. The dream points forward to Jesus Christ. See, he's the one in verse 45. Jesus is the one who is the stone cut from a mountain by no human hand. He's the one who fulfills the prophecies of the, being the one who dashes in pieces the kingdoms of the earth. It's elsewhere in Scripture, Psalm 2. He's the one in whom the everlasting kingdom of God is established. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know this in the 6th century BC, but he's beginning to see how God's mystery will unfold, how God's purposes for this world will come to pass as the wisdom of God in Christ is revealed. Now, our encounters this week with those who are not yet Christians are unlikely to involve dreams and visions and the like, although my uh, very good friend, is my best man, is a missionary in Islamic West Africa, and he tells me that dreams and visions can often be at least a starting point in conversation with Muslims. That might not be what we encounter, but something very similar still happens. It still happens when we pass on the message of God from the Scriptures. Worldviews are challenged and changed. Hearts are challenged and changed 
as troubled spirits, and by that I just mean any and all of us are confronted with the living God, the God of heaven, and meet with Jesus Christ. Some of you, I think, need to be convinced of that because you've never experienced it, either for yourself or with those you've shared with, and it seems to happen to somebody else. Recently, my wife, Yuko, who's down at the front here, made a, a booklet of testimonies of people from Japan who've read the Bible with us, who we've got to know over the last few years. And it's been great to read through those testimonies. But I want just to read you a few short quotations from six of them. Not all of them became Christians, but here's what I want you to do. Listen, what's the, the common denominator in what all of these folks say? So here's number one. I didn't believe in God, but I couldn't think of an answer to refute what the Bible was saying. Number two, what I loved about the Bible was the more I studied it, the more I felt I was coming to understand it. Number three, the more I read the Bible and the more I asked my questions, the more the Bible appeared to me to be a trustworthy book of real history. Number four, from the day I first read the Bible, I was fascinated by God's words and I wanted to know his gospel. Number five, once I started to read the Bible, I began to see the forgiving love of the Lord Jesus, and I realized that his words in the Bible could be applied to my own life. Number six, as I get older, I find I have more occasions to think about why I'm alive and how I should live. And I still feel that I want to find that truth in the Bible. Now, the common denominator in all these stories, and if you want to read the longer versions of them, Yuko can give you a, a copy of the booklet later on. Please ask her. The common denominator is this, an encounter with the God of the Bible through his words in the Bible. And this is why we want to seek opportunities like Daniel did to bring the wisdom of God before those who don't yet know him so that our friends recognize the true God and believe in Him. Would you like to read the Bible with me? What a great question to ask someone we know this week. For Yuko and for me, the challenge will be to continue to do that when we move to Japan long term in the spring. For most of you, the challenge will be to continue to do that where you are in university, in school, in your workplaces, with your families. And it isn't always easy. But when we do it, we can, we should expect God to work, to go on making himself known through his words. It does happen. This gospel is a message of wisdom for the whole world. Did you notice that in verse 4 of the chapter, the Chaldeans start speaking in Aramaic, now, you might know that the vast majority of the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, and there are just a few short sections where it switches to Aramaic, and one of those sections is Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, through to the end of chapter 7. And scholars aren't quite sure why this section is in a different language. There are various different ideas, but the one that seems most convincing to me is that these chapters address matters of universal significance. 
So they're written in a language that reflects that. Aramaic was the court language of Babylon. It was the lingua franca, the most common language of the ancient Near East. See, here we have wisdom, not just for a select few, not limited by geography, not limited by race or ethnicity, but wisdom for the world. And all are invited to hear, to know about the true and living God. It's God's wisdom, God's wisdom in Christ. It's powerful enough to humble a proud ruler, and it's powerful enough to exalt a sinner who brings himself down before God. It's powerful because it's God's power, the gospel of Jesus. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. God's power to save. So, as we get on into this new year, we're already, what is it, 12th of January, let's keep on putting our trust in the only wise God, the God of heaven, the God of our fathers. might not be our literal fathers, but the God of our fathers in Scripture the God who is the great God, the one who's the revealer of mysteries. Let's join in the privilege of being the ones who receive wisdom from heaven and pass it on to those around us. Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God. And let's do that expectantly, that here in Edinburgh, in Japan, wherever you're going, the God of heaven is working, drawing people to Himself by His powerful message in Christ. Let's pray. Loving Father, we are so grateful that You have shared Your wisdom with us so that in Jesus Christ we can be saved. Please help us to share that message in turn with others and to trust You to work to reveal Yourself in power when we do that. And we ask this, that Your church might grow, that Your people might rejoice, that Your name might be glorified and that Christ might be all in all. In His name, amen.